Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Do you take the rubbish out? I mean, I have taken the rubbish out. <laughs> you don't, do you? <laughs> I do try unsuccessfully to argue that if, you know, for as long as the pay gap persists and I've got to deal with menstruation, then surely shouldn't, shouldn't I be at least be given reprieve from, from the blue job that is putting the bins out? <laughs> That's a good argument. Nobody wants to take the bins out. Nobody does want to take those bins out. So, as you can hear, I've just had a very fun chat with Helen Lewis, the preeminent British journalist of The Guardian, The Atlantic, GQ, and many others, about difficult women. That's the topic of this podcast, but it's also the name of Helen's eye-opening new book, which you can get in all the normal places. I wanted to have her on the show because she has a distinctively measured take on the battles women have faced over the last century or so. Her book covers obstacles women have had to overcome over the years, such as getting divorced, legalised, getting the vote, changing the way we talk about sex, and so on. But it does so without lecturing or reproaching men, while also adopting a warts-and-all approach to the women she writes about. They weren't saints, and Helen writes about things like the jealousy and classist rivalries in the suffragette movement, and how some of these pioneering feminists were attracted to fascism and eugenics, Helen shows you can be an activist and fight for social justice without alienating everyone else or showing off your virtue. She's long been a famous name in British journalism. She's made radio documentaries for the BBC, including a recent one I enjoyed called The Roots of Woke Culture, where she interviewed anti-social justice scholars Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay, who also came on this podcast. Her name really took off online after her GQ interview on YouTube with famous Canadian psychiatrist Jordan Peterson. I don't want you to leave this podcast, but I do recommend you check it out. It has 16 million views right now, so it's likely you've already seen it. I thought she really held her own against one of the world's most famous intellects. We discussed that Jordan Peterson interview, as well as trans rights, woke culture, sex, and we really do laugh a lot. I really enjoyed this one and hope you do too. At the end, I'll read out a couple of reviews this podcast got this week, but for now, I've got an inflammatory question. Inflammatory question, is is feminism over? We definitely do need it. I think there's a question about what form it should take and how much it should talk more broadly about gender and how gender affects men as well. Um, But, you know, you look at the fact that the majority of the world's wealth is owned by men. Um, Still, you know, we come a long way and we've had two female prime ministers, but the kind of default that it snaps back to is is men. And we have a very blokey Downing Street at the moment. Only 30% of people in Parliament uh, are women. And, you know, you have to keep kind of pushing at that if you want to keep that up. And I think that's a, you know, 
women have a right to be involved in the process of laws that are made about them and have their life experiences represented. So there's lots of different ways. Um, you know, I think if you look at something like domestic violence, it's very obvious that feminism is still needed. Um, that we, The way that we talk about that crime is still so inflected by the history of the idea of women as kind of property and what happens in the home as a kind of private matter that's got nothing to do with anybody else. The developing world particularly, right? You are in a situation where there are countries where female fetuses are being aborted simply because, you know, girls are seen as more expensive and less worthwhile. But here in Britain too, there's lots of historic injustices that still... So there are essentially 92 seats in the British Parliament that are reserved for men, right? Because of hereditary peers. I was going to ask you about that because I spoke to a peer last week, uh, Daniel Finkelstein. Uh, he's one of them. Uh, and he's he's, well, he's also not hereditary, but yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. He was appointed. But but that hereditary thing seems... I actually read... Because I didn't even know that when I was speaking to him. And when I read it in your book, I was, I was astounded. That's totally insane. And that you pointed out that... Is, this, is that right? That it doesn't go to the, the firstborn... Uh, child it's the firstborn son who would be so yeah you have to be a peer in order to be elected as a one of the 92 spaces that are reserved for hereditary peers they put, they put them on pause for the moment actually until the end of the year I mean obviously the whole thing to me is slightly crazy but on a, on a narrow kind of gender equality point yeah it's it's the Countess of Mar retired in um, May so all of those seats currently are held by men so it's just, it's just sort of weird, like one, what, one eighth of our second legislative chamber is essentially reserved for men. And that's what I mean. It's just, it's kind of weird quirks that, and, 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 and a consistent theme I talk about in the book is the kind of, well, that's not really our top priority. And I understand that it probably isn't people's top priority. But to me, the fact that our parliament, our lawmaking body is still biased in favour of men is quite a big deal. I think, I think people would, I, I really find that shocking. I really, I think if they're... I don't know. When you when you're a man, I think you want to believe there's a there's a temptation to believe that this kind of thing isn't happening. Uh because if you're told that you're getting every advantage, then I guess it feels like every everything you achieve is slightly devalued. Mm. Um so you want to not believe that, that that's true, but that's a very obvious example. I think that's a really good way of putting it because one of the ways that I think those discussions happen is that they do put people on the back foot and people will instantly go to thinking about all the things in their life that have been really tough actually they'll think about the fact they went to a tough school or you know their parents split when they were young or you know they've been ill with you know or they lost their job in bad circumstances so that kind of way of talking that says you know I, I mean I do think that there are ways in which being a man is you know it's just a, a, a bonus right it just makes your life easier in a lot of ways but it doesn't mean it make the mean that your life is easy and that's the difficulty of all of those privilege discussions. And it's the same one that we have around racial privilege, too. It's easier to be white. It doesn't mean that it's easy. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it doesn't mean that your life is kind of blessed and, and, and nothing bad can happen to you. And I think that's the difficulty is people react very strongly against those things because they, they don't feel particularly lucky. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the time or they, do, or they don't personally feel responsible for the systemic bias which is also a kind of reasonable thing you know I didn't ask for the system to be made why am I being you know tarred with this brush of all these other people who are abusing it I think that's a natural and instinctive reaction so for me it was always like the way that I wanted to do in the book was always writing about how can we change the structures because that sort of takes the personal blame out of it I think which is an, an unhelpful thing if you're trying to make allies I think that's exactly why uh, I find you and your book so interesting and why I wanted to talk to you because there's definitely a feeling when somebody, when you feel like you're being lectured to or that you're being told that you were lucky and you were fortunate or whatever, you just, you close off, which I think mm. a lot of people are worried, for example, about the way that people are framing, as you say, the race debate at the moment. And that's, a lot of people think that's just going to put Trump back in power because it just pe makes people go, oh, I'm not listening. I'm just going to vote for my thing. Um, 
And that's what you do with the book. Like, of course, difficult women. Um, again, like nobody wants to read. I don't think I'm not interested in reading anything about saints. I'm, I'm not into religion. I don't like uh, veneration of, of people who don't seem human. Uh, it's so much easier to relate to these people. And I had no idea about the suffragettes, you know, the infighting, the classism, uh, the, the fascism um, in points and uh, sort of the, the link between contraception and, and eugenics. Has that been something that's always interested you about that side of feminism and, and, and social justice in, in general? Actually, yeah, I had a real problem when I was doing the book in that I fell down a rabbit hole with the suffragettes and I spent way more time on them than really let my my planner allowed because they're fascinating. I can't think of a comparable kind of guerrilla movement led by women anywhere, any place. You know, there have been female terrorists, I guess you might say, but the fact that this was a female-led revolutionary organisation that was, you know, whose membership was exclusively limited to women and was, you know, explicitly okay with violence is almost unique if not totally unique i'm sure someone will pop up at some point and tell me about something i have you know um you know cambodia in the 1670s or something that i haven't heard about but yeah i i was fascinated by the suffragettes for that reason because their whole um ethos was two things that women are kind of not supposed to be first is is violent militant and the second one is selfish and putting themselves first you know the reason that Sylvia Pankhurst gets kicked out by her mother and sister is because she wants to campaign about other stuff. She wants to be a kind of more general anti-poverty activist. You know, they weren't allowed to be get themselves involved in the Irish home rule debate, for example, or to be affiliated with the then quite you know up-and-coming Labour Party. They did the vote. That's what they did. They didn't do anything else. Um, and that is, you know, that I I think now if there were like single issue groups now in feminism find that still quite that they're being challenged about why this why not anything else you know, why are you prioritizing yourself why are you putting yourself first um and so for that and many other reasons yeah i find the suffragettes absolutely fascinating are you concerned about the way some people frame feminism yeah i was having this conversation with a colleague actually because i i saw people sort of knee-jerk overreacting to a tweet by the un which said you know a male-dominated world has failed to respond to the coronavirus um, pandemic. And people kind of went, oh, this is the latest, you know, like mad, you know, feminazi policing, blah, blah, blah. And the point about it is, is, you know, particularly the point here being that more men are dying, right? It's it's an illness that seems to hit men harder. They're more likely to go to intensive care. They're more likely to die. So I think the problem with that is I just felt lots of people instantly now because of what you call, you know, woke culture. I don't know if there's a better phrase for it have that instinctive reaction that feminism is just this sort of language obsessed elite tiny self-important kind of movement and actually it's still it's not it's got really you know solid bread and butter things to say about ordinary people's lives it's not about people arguing about whether or not you spell women with an x and all this sort of stuff but because of that stuff if that's people's first encounter with feminism they think it's sort of saying you know cry your male tears and like we're going to rewrite the whole of grammar in order to do some some quest that we've never quite fully explained to you, hmm. then yeah, I think it is a massive, massive turn off. And, and 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 feminism has got so much to say by saying, you know, men's roles have changed so much in the last hundred years. And actually, I don't know about you, but lots of my male friends, their their idea of what a great life is is not that kind of 1950s ideal of going to work, coming home, never seeing their kids, no. you know, dropping dead of a heart attack at 50 <laughs> with a car, you know, with their with their carriage clock in their hands. You know, actually, the way that it said that, that men's lives can be much more interesting and much more expansive has benefited men too and I think you can make those arguments in ways that people understand but Twitter particularly makes them in ways that are designed to score points and yeah. and, and and you know and just I think that's just a massive turn off to people what's a carriage clock 
carriage clock is like what you used to get when you were um when you retired like a really fancy clock with I'm okay maybe I'm maybe I'm 9,000 years old it's a I, I promise yeah. you it's a real thing you're older than me maybe I don't know actually how old are you 31 yeah everyone's uh, everyone's younger than me these days god I'm anyway. sorry about that if I could turn it around I would I wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> um what was I just going to ask am I a feminist can I I know you don't know me can I be a feminist yeah I don't have a real problem with that I'm some people are very precious about whether or not men can identify as feminists and mm. I see the point of that right which is that there is a terrible tendency for some men some men to kind of come in and go little ladies what have you all been up to you know yeah. why don't you sort this out can't you just be nice to people um <laughs> captured in that great onion headline you know man put in charge of struggling feminist movement yeah, and then the first yeah. line is yeah he said he was gonna like make some calls to the guys upstairs and get it all sorted out and i think yeah. that's where the, the, the knee-jerk uh like don't do it comes from is the fact that when men want to get involved in feminism it's generally not that they want to you know hand out leaflets make the tea it's generally that they want to be in charge of it or tell everyone in it that they've been doing something wrong <laughs> yeah. um and and so i think that's where it comes from but you know we talked about the suffragettes one of my absolute heroes fred pethick lawrence who was married to emily pethick lawrence they um they took each other's surnames so he wasn't allowed to be a member of the women's social and political union because they barred men from being part of it but nonetheless he got arrested on behalf of the suffragettes he was force fed you know, my my husband gave me a Christmas card last year, which had stuff about like that people had said about us both on the internet. And after I did that Jordan Peterson interview, someone yes. described him as a, a a beta cuck. Some guy on Reddit, and and there was a lot of that. There was a whole forum about how you know he what well, this guy must be totally pussy whipped because he's married to a feminist. And Fred Pethick Lawrence is getting that in like 1912, right? It's a consistent theme. But he did it anyway because he really believed in it, and he really believed that Emmeline should have financial independence from him that he wasn't her master he was her partner in life and mm. so if, if if men are going to feel like that then I don't think you want to I personally I mean, I'm not that interested in driving them away and telling them how to describe themselves I'm instantly distrustful of men who are overt about their feminism uh, I made a documentary about abortion in Argentina I was following uh, you know the vote a couple of years ago which which didn't pass uh, mm. legal legal abortion uh, and there were so many times when I was at rallies filming people and I'd go and talk to like a group and I kept trying to just focus on maybe the women in the in the group and the men would just these sort of Latino testosterone filled men would jump in and answer for them and go yeah we're here to fight for women's rights and so on and so on. and no matter how many times I went back to the the women the men still kept getting involved and I thought you you don't really care there's a lot of that isn't there about it i think all social movements attract people who don't care so much about the cause as being in charge or having some status from it or what it says about them yeah. and you know that's not necessarily an illegitimate impulse i think lots of people do end up doing a lot of good because they want to you know seem cool and and you know progressive or whatever it might be but it's it's tough in feminism i do think there is a difference between male and female socialization i know this has become a, a really controversial subject about how much gender differences are innate and how much are socialized but the research we generally have says that you know boys get more attention in class for example um you know they're encouraged to speak more and that that doesn't necessarily always help them right as i write in the book there's a big problem with boys who are kind of indulged being what we'd call boisterous when they're in primary school and then yeah. they get to secondary school and they're suddenly told hang on you're being a yobbo like this is really bad behavior you know whereas girls who've been told to shut up and sit down and keep their legs you know crossed in a ladylike fashion all the way through their life don't have such a big adjustment to make yeah but yeah i think that i think that men do tend to dominate group discussions not all men and there are some extremely shouty women of whom i count myself one <laughs> you don't seem shouty not in a negative way anyway but um 
that's something I've thought about a lot before because a lot of the, the female the people, the female people, a lot of the women in my life, um, that's even that's a controversial thing to say. You know, that's another subject. But the women, <laughs> women in my, my life um, often don't take the same risks that I see men take. It's completely anecdotal what I'm saying. I have no, no evidence for this, but they don't seem to take the same risks. And I, I sort of attributed that to what you're saying about when you're very young and maybe it was like the boys were told like, oh, you can jump in the puddle. And the women were told like, stay back, don't get dirty. You know, do you think that mm. that has an effect? I think that's definitely true. And like you say, all of this is anecdotal. And you will talk to people who say, well, look, you know, I just, it's it's totally, it's obviously natural you know my son was picking up toy bricks I never put pushed them on him and actually it's just really hard to tell because you know children are like big sponges of information and if you are you know a two-year-old three-year-old boy who's who kind of goes I want the pink dress and your grandparent goes like that then you're going to register that like you know children are incredibly um you know, and they're incredibly malleable. And so it's not a massive surprise that they, that most children end up doing kind of conventional things that we associate with their gender. It's really hard to work out whether that's natural or not, because, you know, unless you can have a child kind of raised by robots, we'll, we'll never fully know what they're, what cues they're picking up from their parents. Yeah, my my dad, I remember when I was a kid, I must say, it was one of my earliest memories. I remember walking into the bedroom and he had had like a hairdresser over who was putting foil and stuff in his hair. And it was like one of those moments when, ah, get out, no. I think it's fascinating because, you know, and, and this, I thought about it for a while about whether or not I should write my next book about masculinity because mm. and I think it's really fascinating. There's such an advantage in women in trading up, right, and seeming manly. All the things we associate with men, you know, they're authoritative, they're serious. Um, you know, wearing trousers is seen as a kind of, you know, it's it, you're you're kind of taking the clothes of the superior class. There's no such incentive for the, to do, for men to trade down, right? It's still, I think, it's a lot easier, I think, for a woman to be, um, you know, assertive, domineering, all those things. Although there's, you know, there's there's some pushback. It's really hard for men to be what we would perceive as being feminine. One of the things Jordan Peterson, I think it was him saying, and I haven't looked into this. It just came into my head when you were talking about sort of. Um, we haven't got robots uh, looking after us. They've tried that in the Scandinavian countries. They've tried it. It didn't work. I mean, I was just enjoying your Jordan Peterson impression. <laughs> uh, thank you for that. Yeah, there's um, there's interesting research about the fact that although the Scandinavian countries are much more gender equal, actually, weirdly, their women and men sort themselves into more traditionally feminine roles, right? So the theory is that actually women are forcing themselves to become engineers and, you know, uh, rocket scientists against their nature because those uh those careers are better rewarded it's always really hard to separate out because what we think of as male and female jobs are so culturally and historically specific so computer coding for example was a female job when it was seen as essentially secretarial work touring time Bletchley Park was yeah full of women they recruited Mm. women who were brilliant at crossword puzzles um and now it's seen as a mathsy STEM job, um, and therefore it's it's seen as a, a male job. And actually, it's you know one of the things that's really noticeable is its prestige really really went up during that time. But all of that stuff is really hard to unpick. So when women do most of the cooking at home, why are the most Michelin starred chefs male? So is cooking male or female as a as an occupation? It, there's like there's obviously something much more complicated going on than either you know frying pans are can only be understood by the great male brain versus like any man touches a frying pan and he bursts into tears it's a it's a it's women's work I, yeah i just don't know how you unpack that stuff it's sort of i feel like in my relationship it's a lot of that happened quite naturally and i, I guess that well it must be social as well but we don't even realize it but like 
I don't know. All I know is she wants me to take the bins out all the time. And that's like the man job, isn't it? But then she cooks. I don't know. I think that's, I yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, Theresa May described putting the bins out as a blue job. And so in my house, I only semi-ironically go, that's a blue job. <laughs> do you take the rubbish out? <laughs> I mean, I have taken the rubbish out. <laughs> you don't, do you? <laughs> but I, I, I do try unsuccessfully to argue that if, you know, for as long as the pay gap persists, um, you know, uh, I've got to deal with menstruation, then surely shouldn't shouldn't I be at least be given reprieve from from the blue job that is putting the bins out? <laughs> That's a good argument. Nobody wants to take the bins out. It's the worst job, isn't it, of all the household jobs? I don't really know why. I think it's probably because the, the possibility of leaks is quite high, oh. as is opening the door into whatever absurd weather Britain is now about to throw at you. You've got to put your trousers on. Oh. <laughs> it's a nightmare. It's far worse than loading the dishwasher. The cooking's you've got to really think, what am I going to do today that's different? And so that's what I don't like having to do. So I do cook sometimes. I make good gnocchis. Um, How do you make, what do you mean? You, you make gnocchi from scratch. Okay, so you've caught me out. Or, or do you heat pre-existing formed <laughs> bits of potato? Because that's, that's not actually cooking, is it? That's warming. I throw gnocchis into hot water that I buy in the fridge. The, the gnocchis, not the hot water. I do the hot water myself. <laughs> because I put it in a pot and then my girlfriend gets a real treat with this and I I get blue cheese and mushrooms and and stuff put it all in a pan and go not the the blue cheese goes at the end you know put a bit of parsley which I don't notice the difference but it looks better it's bay leaves isn't it what is what is the point of it it's all nonsense I mean what a modern man you are that's what Emmeline Pankhurst was fighting for right there I was told I was like an 80 year old man when I was 18 I hated clubbing and I hated like being a bloke or whatever um so i'm like an old man anyway uh speaking of old men though so the jordan pizza we can't get away from him just because it was such an explosive and extremely popular video and you probably must be tired of talking about him and almost you don't want to be defined by that moment he was so angry though what was that about well the thing that's fascinating is that not everybody thinks that and i've been writing a couple of things for the sunday times over the summer and almost every time there'll be a comment about how out of my depth i was in that interview with him how i was I brought in such because he went to Joe Rogan and said I brought negative animus into the room, like how how incredibly angry I was, and that's why I think that interview is a really interesting Rorschach test actually about what you see kind of reflects your pre-existing biases and what you brought to it. Because my reading of it was he was quite grumpy. I mean, as it turns out, he had a terrible year. His wife had had cancer. He was on this incredibly draining speaking tour. You know, he was only eating beef. He, I don't know if at the time, but subsequently became addicted or physically dependent on prescription drugs. So I don't think he was in. I don't think he was in his most chipper self. But um, but people looked at that and thought that I was the angry one, and I think that's kind of fascinating. I find that insane, actually. And you know what? I was ready. I, that was the first. I think first time I was exposed to your work. Exposed to sounds horrible. Like it's a, you know, affection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but that was the first time, and I was so ready to see him take someone apart because again like I said earlier I think Jordan Peterson very much appealed to me and a lot of what he says still does appeal to me because I'm a man who's white and middle class and stuff and I want to be told that everything I do was just as hard as it was for everyone else and everything I don't get it doesn't mean I'm stupid because I don't get this job or so on um I don't want so he's very appealing and I just found the total opposite I think like that was the first time I thought oh wow what is this angry man everything you said because he just made so many assumptions about what you would think I mean were you were you nervous going into that meeting 
Yeah, only slightly. I mean, I'd seen what had happened to Kathy Newman, who had... Oh, God, yeah. But, you know, to, to give Kathy her credit, she that was probably one of, you know, a hundred book-based interviews that she had done that year, right? I often find myself using up my evenings, because reading a book, you know, takes a reasonably long amount oh, yeah. of time. And and I'm, you know, and, and she's got kids. So I, I think that she was unfortunate to stumble into that with with not enough preparation ready for what was going to happen. He had to sort of ask his fans to kind of call off the dogs, really, right, in terms of getting threats and intimidation and abuse. So I thought, well, I'm letting myself in for in for that. So is that what I really want to do? And then the other related question to that was, you know, is this just a circus? Am I am I advancing the cause of human knowledge here or am I but you know boosting my own career by being part of a nihilistic process that just makes everyone even angrier with each other having written a piece about him that was quite rude I then thought actually I'm going to go into this very sure of what I believe but I'm not going to be deliberately dickish to him right I'm not going to try and dunk on him I don't think the world needs any more of that really how long did you prepare for Jordan Peterson my whole <laughs> life to some extent but um <laughs> yeah no I mean his his condition was that you had to have read um 12 rules for life which you know, which was totally reasonable. And so I had read that. I, I, I read, I mean, Maps of Meaning is a is a trip. I don't know if you've seen that, his first book, no. which is basically kind of um, Joseph Campbell, The Hero's Journey, but like as if filtered through someone who's taken a lot of acid okay. and has lots of stuff about chaos and dragons and um, mothers. And, 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 and yeah, I mean, it's quite something. He goes to a high security um mental hospital I think when he's just recently qualified as a psychiatrist it's full of murderers and for some reason he goes wearing a cape and knee-high leather boots this is non-fiction I mean unless he's writing auto-fiction then yeah he, this is something he himself says that he did and I and, and because it's from before he became famous it's much more unfiltered um, I actually I got the Amtrak to for, from New York to Baltimore where I did the interview and I was reading 12 Rules for Life and making my angry notes in the margins and I looked across the aisle and there was a guy reading 12 Rules for Life and I thought <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, hello, brother. I hope you don't strike up a conversation about this because I think, oh, <laughs> I think our attitudes are going to be rather different. And one of the reasons why I think it, it attracted so much attention and it's so hard to argue against is it really does range across a huge amount of subjects. And the thing that was fascinating to me is people assume that because he's got a you know psychology professorship, that he was also an expert about evolutionary biology. Now, I had talked to people about that who were genuine experts in, in it. Um, in genetics, you'd said, you know, all the kind of lobster stuff is, is this doesn't make sense at all. Mm. But the assumption was that because I'm a journalist and because he's got a professorship and he's a man, that he's he's science and I'm emotion, right? I felt that was very strongly part of the response. Women are emotion, yeah. men are facts. Well, especially he's so he's so like that, isn't he? So no one can see what that is on an audio thing, but he he's so stoic. Yeah, and it's and it's that kind of and as you mentioned Ben Shapiro, there's a kind of like facts don't care about your feelings, and all of that new atheist movement was very male as well. Yeah, and, and they are not atheists. Yeah, well, that's the thing of Ben Shapiro and uh, Jordan Peterson. Not that I have need people to be atheists or anything, but it was a red flag for me that they're both very religious, Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro. Well, Peterson doesn't really properly embrace that he's he's played quite a lot of footsie about it i think mm. which is which again is quite interesting because i think and you're right if your one mode is hyper rational then to kind of quote chris Hitchens, how do you go but i also believe in the sky fairy <laughs> um it's it's quite hard to match those things up together but yeah his writing is kind of deeply religious it's certainly um slate star codex scott alexander the blogger wrote the one of the most interesting things i've read about it which compared it to c.s lewis which is about how incredibly concerned it is with sin you know, that both of both of yes. them as writers are obsessed with people being kind of fallen and sinful. And how do you kind of redeem yourself? 
are there parts that you agree with that he makes good points about? Yeah, I think he's, a, I mean, I think he's a, ultimately a, a smart guy. Um, mm. And I think that uh, some of the resistance to uh, some of the stuff that's happening in Canada to do with free speech is important. Actually, the bit that I think I probably most would move from where I said, and I think I kind of went there in the interview, was the bit about the kind of comedians and prosecuting comedians and, and free speech. I think that's really difficult terrain because I think there's two things that are simultaneously happening, which is one, I think that the left has become quite uneasy about free speech. They think it is a kind of cover for yeah. bad views getting an airing and therefore they want they are they are much less liberal than perhaps they would have been 20 or 30 years ago yeah but at the same time also i think people are using jokes and humor as a trojan horse for some pretty grim ideologies um and that's really difficult terrain to picture about what speech do you criminalize and when is a joke really a joke and when is it a nudge wink to your far-right audience so you know i i think it's i think it was brave to have kind of got involved in that debate Okay. And and actually, when you read 12 Rules for Life, the, the gender stuff aside, and I do think there's a kind of men should be men and women should be women's thing, which I find a, very conservative, you know, fundamentally like tidy your room, you know, raise your children well. It's not, it's not abhorrent, is it? Yeah, it does sound very 1950s, though, when you put it like that. <laughs> be nice to cats. That's genuinely one of the rules for life is be nice to cats. I think we cannot surely... Who is against that? Only monsters who like dogs are against that. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random 
random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's EXPRESSVPN.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. You know what, though? I wonder a little bit. This is going to be controversial. So, I mean, I'm going to bring in two things that are totally unrelated then. One was that you mentioned that sex in your book, sex has been uh, made to seem cool. And that, the reason I thought of that was because of cats. And I, I do like cats, right? But I love dogs and cats scratch you all the time and i think that they've also been made to become this sort of internet meme but you might want to talk more about the sex bit because that was actually more relevant <laughs> yeah to i was that. waiting to see how those those two things ended up being relevant to each other cats yeah. are like sex and dogs are like what yeah I mean, there's a there's a line in the book about you know like sex is fun but so is rock climbing you know don't <laughs> go on about it all the time um because i think there is again it's a it's a left-wing thing of just thinking that any sex is liberatory actually and it which is a sort of weirdly kind of slightly teenage attitude to have and it's kind of odd to see it persisted to people in their 30s and 40s mm. they're kind of like oh look at me i'm so cool i have sex right i mean yeah what would you want do you want a medal i'd be like great yeah. um and you see that in discussions of things like you know kink and which people genuinely think there's something amazingly exciting about them because they're into bdsm and it's like well you know what you do in your private life is ultimately up to you but it doesn't make you cooler than anyone else mm. it's a very strange attitude and I think particularly when it comes to women it's used to override women's you know ideas of consent sometimes so the idea that if you say no to something it's because you're a prude um and that happens with uh you know um anal sex because of porn I think and it also happens in more controversially with lesbians who don't want to sleep with trans women who've got penises that the, the very idea that you might mm. rule out a kind of category of people who want to sleep with them is seen as exclusionary yeah. And and I don't think that's true. People just have sexual preferences, and and that's not that they're not subject to to political policing. It's not the same as hiring someone for a job. You have a right to say for any reason that you don't want to sleep with anyone, no matter how ridiculous someone else yeah. might think it is that you don't fancy people with moustaches or you only fancy people with one leg. Like that's your entirely your business. Can you be a staunch feminist and? a trans activist i mean absolutely you can i mean i <laughs> i don't like talking about this subject because um of the abuse involved but mm, i think it's important to 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 do so um because i you know i think it's entirely legitimate to say there are people who very strongly feel that they were whatever you want to call it born in the wrong body that they don't they feel intense alienation from their bodies and their lives are much fuller and happier and they feel more authentic if they live as the opposite gender absolutely don't have a problem with that at all and I don't think anybody should as a kind of on a yeah. on liberal grounds what is difficult and on where we've ended up at is that we don't talk about the fact that 99% of the feminist movement and trans activist movements overlap right that there's loads of things we, we all believe for example that male violence is a real thing and that women both trans and not are at, at risk from it but the, the bit that is contested is are you if you're not born female are you in every way identical to someone who was 
And it just seems obvious to me that you're not. And I don't think that makes you any less of a woman, which I see as a legal and cultural category. Mm. But it does mean, for example, that you, you know, you're not going to need cervical smear tests. Like (laughs) there are just kind of fundamentally very obvious differences. And lots of things that feminism is concerned about now are about living in a female body, about getting pregnant through rape, about needing access to abortion services, about menopause and the way that we don't have proper research on that, all of that stuff. And I worry about female biological issues being automatically interpreted as a dis to the trans movement. I think that's kind of where we've got to, where some people just see that, you know, any discussion of periods as a woman's issue, just as an innately hostile act. And I don't think that's sustainable because I think most, the majority of normal people are completely on board with the idea that you would let trans people live their lives with as little interference from the state as possible. But you can't tell people that there are things they're not allowed to talk about because, you know, 0.5% of women don't share that experience. It's just not fundamentally sustainable. Is what you've just said very different to what Jermaine Jermaine Greer or Professor Todd have said, that that, uh, Selena Todd was, that that got them... Uh, no platformed? Well, good question. I mean, one of those things where it's, it's such a f- febrile debate because no one really knows what what is enough to get you called transphobic. I mean, certainly people refer to me as a, as, as a turf um, mm. because I say that, you know, for example, there is a, a conversation to be had about rape shelters or women's sports, for example. Um, that alone is enough. You know, the position of American um, organizations is now, if you've gone through male puberty, that doesn't matter. You should be allowed to compete in, in women's sports and anything less than that is, you know, is is discrimination. So, yeah, I mean, I think the difference is that Jermaine Greer being Jermaine Greer has been ferociously rude about it, right? There's a whole bit okay. in The Whole Woman where she says, you know, that the transsexual is like Norma Bates's mother, you know, he's k- killed the body of the woman that gave birth to it. And you're like... This is just what is this? You know, this is just a pointless rudeness, um, yeah. which is a bit, a bit germane. Yeah. Um, and and you know, and I think that the discussion of pronouns is another one that people find really difficult. I know people who won't use people's preferred pronouns as a kind of political point. And again, you know, there are people who will insist on referring to me by my old married name, and it's just, I mean, it's just, I don't know if we need to kind of go into anything more complicated than saying that that's a deliberately rude act to do someone else. So, what you know, why would you do it? Well, you think they're doing that on they're they're purposely forgetting your name now? Oh yeah, no, I do. I mean, I get left wing people who refer to my because my first husband and I took each other's surnames, and they will they will bring that up and reference that. Um, and it's it, it, you know, I don't think you need to say that it's sexist. It's just it's just fundamentally rude. One thing Helen Pluckrose was saying recently was uh, that women have been uh, taken out of the woke or the social justice pyramid. Is that happening? Oh, I think that's really fascinating because I think there is an assumption that w- white women don't have anything to complain about. Um, they're not actually oppressed. So I think people are quite happy sometimes to acknowledge that, yes, black women are oppressed. Yes, you know, um, trans women and trans people are oppressed. Yes, you know, lesbians are oppressed. But if you are in every other way privileged, if you're middle class, white, you know, privately educated, you know, had have a degree, what have you got to complain about? You know, that's a, a function of how reductive those arguments online can sometimes be, where there's a sort of mental racking up of who's got the most privileged points and then whoever's got the least is sort of automatically awarded victory in the conversation. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and, and I think you see it with Judaism as well. Um, there was a fascinating extract in Patrick McGuire and Gabriel Progren's book about um, Corbynism left out in which uh, one of Corbyn's aides explained to him that Corbyn is often on the side of the underdog. And thankfully, that's not the position of Jewish people in Britain mm-hmm. today. And of course, the immediate <laughs> response comes back. Well, you know what? A lot of 
Jews in Vienna in the 1930s had a lot of money. It didn't stop them getting packed off to a gas chamber. That's not yeah. how anti-Semitism works. And the same thing with, with misogyny. There is only a, there is a limit to how much you can insulate yourself from being a rape victim, no matter how economically privileged you are. I suppose it's sexism and racism on the left. Yeah, that's why it's interesting to me that you see a lot of what I would think of as progressive misogyny and a lot of left-wing anti-Semitism now. Because the framing of how social justice works is about punching up versus punching down sure. and i think that there's a, there's an assumption that actually both of those categories white women and jewish people you it's not that you know it's not punching down to have a go at them they're actually pretty powerful it's painful um you mentioned um getting divorced yourself and that plays a, a huge role in in the, the early parts of your book um and divorce is the first is it the first chapter it's the first chapter isn't it mm-hmm. uh an interesting place to start and uh yeah, how did it feel in like inserting yourself and your life into the book? Uh, difficult because in some ways it's much easier to talk about yourself because you don't have to do any research or fact checking. <laughs> so, and you know, most of us are quite um, self-involved. I think so. You know, <laughs> thinking about you know writing about yourself is is only it's unfortunately only too easy compared with the hard graft of going and researching things that happened in the nineteen tens. But at the same time, I was really wary of opening the box of letting people into my private life because once you've done that it's very hard to then put a a limit on it and actually to come back to Jordan Peterson so I wrote uh, a a piece for Grazia that was based around that first chapter of talking about things you only know if you get divorced before you're 30 and some Jordan Peterson fans thought I was talking about my current husband with who I'm been very happily married for five years Mm. and were absolutely crowing about the fact because I said to him I said to Peterson in the interview that I was married that like oh, look, you know, she'd actually left him all this time. Being a feminist is actually really terrible for your marriage. Uh, and to the extent of, like, going and editing my Wikipedia page <laughs> to, to divorce me from my, my husband, which he was thrilled about. Oh, my about. God. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and it's, it, it kind of comes up persistently. And so, which was a, a risk that I knew I was taking when I opened a box of putting my private life in, to, into the book. Hmm. Um, so that was, you know, I was very wary about that. But I wanted to make it as readable a book as possible to as wide an audience as possible. And I think doing, I think putting my personal life in there helps you connect what would otherwise be quite a big sprawling range of topics. Yeah. And hopefully gives me some, um, you know, gives people some kind of light relief from some of the kind of crunchier, you know, cause there's big topics in there, you know, like universal credit and domestic violence that are, that are quite weighty and grim, but it's not, a, I hope a weighty and grim book i've tried to be like put a few you know cheap jokes in there yeah, um i've been chuckling and, and good which is what <laughs> i which I, is what i wanted to do really and i and i didn't want it to be preaching to the choir that was the absolute one thing i didn't want like what is the point of people who already basically agree with me just being validated and how correct they are that's you know there's no point in writing that book at all i wanted it to be the book that you could give to you know your 17 year old niece or nephew or you could give to your girlfriend or your boyfriend like who's just you know vaguely like progressive but not I think it does really work for for me people like me um because like I said I mean I'm not going to read white privilege for is that what's called that one um, white fragility Robin white fragility. I'm not going to read that because I just already know that it's saying that I'm a bad person and I just don't want to, I'm just not interested. I just don't want to know that. I mean, that. I do, I would suggest <laughs> reading it because it is a deeply, deeply weird book. Not least because the author herself just seems to live in this sort of strange world where she compliments a black woman on her hair and then she spends days worrying that she's actually done a microaggression oh. and then like begs her forgiveness. And the thing is that, you know, it's entirely possible that she has offended this other person, but like the whole... 
incredible narcissistic self-consciousness of this. I just imagine she must feel constantly on edge when around people of other races in a way that probably makes them feel really weird as well. Like yeah. it is not a model of society that I think you, we should aim for. If I'm speaking to someone from a different race, I'm not really thinking about it. And, and I guess I feel like she's so aware of it. This is what we were saying before. I think it's like this almost reverse racism kind of thing. There's something going on in her mind that's, I don't know. It drives me mad. But it's sort of, it's sort of mm. self-flagellating in a way that makes me go, just, you know, donate to... <laughs> you know, efforts to stop gerrymandering yeah. or like volunteer at your local polling place so that the, you know, that the overwhelmingly black district doesn't only have a polling place. It's open for three hours yeah. or whatever it might be. Like go and do something instead of spending your whole time navel gazing about what you like, how you feel about everything and how you're interacting with the world. And the other thing yeah. that happens that's related is, so I, I run this um, radio four series called the spark, um, which is about solutions to, to big problems. Um, and one of the things I decided, you know, really early on, I was like, I want this to be, in terms of guests, I want it to be half men, half women. That's the population. I want it to be, you know, around about 12%, one in eight uh, ethnic minority, because that's where the population is. Like that is, you know, and I want it to be balanced between the left and, and right. And looking at the books of people with their big solutions and ideas, what comes through really strongly is that there's a lot of white men writing books about their big ideas about economics and politics. And there's a lot more women in ethnic minorities writing books about what it means to be a woman or an ethnic minority. And I think that becomes a real trap as well, is that you kind of all end up fighting for the woman slot or the black slot instead of being asked to have, you know, to be competing in the, in, yeah. the, in the big game, as it were. Um, and then again, that comes out of the kind of, you know, I think this comes out of a certain kind of laziness about assuming that the only things that minorities can talk about are themselves or the minority experience. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, again, just going back to my own personal experience and complaints and things, I have been told often, if you want to get around this, I mean, some people joked like, oh, we could break your legs for you and then you'd be a minority then. But some people have said, and seriously, well, you, you need to be doing things about Judaism. You need to be doing things about uh, the Hasidic Jews, for example, that kind of thing, because I'm Jewish and that's my thing. And I, I found that I was incredibly insulted because I just thought, I, why am I being defined by that? I, I have nothing to do with the Hasidic Jews. And I think what you're saying is uh, minorities should be able to do about politics, about economics. How do you change that? It is a really bad temptation to hire people to do kind of beats based around their identity if you don't also you know, try and open up the, the really plum prestige jobs. Um, and that's the, that to me is the test, is not how many series you're making about black history presented by black presenters, but how many series you're making about what we define as history, right? Um, you know, and I think there are lots of women writers who feel very much that they, they I don't want to, I want to be a writer. I don't want to be a women writer, women's writer. Um, and, and I agree with you. The problem comes at the fact that the people want kind of quick wins um, and and they want to preserve their own power within an institution. So they don't actually want the radical reform that would mean, as you say, like the top echelons of the BBC truly looking at the country that they represent. It's, it's you know, we want the change to happen somewhere else. And, and this is one of the kind of central things that I spend a lot of time thinking about and trying to work through is how do you push for women without making it look like it will come at the expense of men or if it is going to come at the expense of men how do you reconcile them to that yeah. because no one likes giving up power no one like why 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 would you yeah. um and i think that's very true in, in race discussions as well like british society is fundamentally incredibly racially unequal and that needs to change how do you do that whilst maintaining 
consent among everybody with that while whilst maintaining an idea of everybody having kind of shared human identity rather than being kind of carved up and without provoking a, a backlash it's really tough do you feel optimistic will there, will there be a time when it's like okay we're done yeah put the put, put the kettle on <laughs> yeah. uh i mean i don't know why you would look at human history and ever think that and i think that's a mistake that kind of left liberals made right from the late 90s to maybe you were put at the end date of that as 2016 in a couple of different ways the idea that you kind of put your feet up and go oh well that's glad we sorted all that out and western liberal democracy is the final finished form of government that was a uphill struggle but <laughs> we're clock off now that's not really yeah. how politics works does it i mean you know um look at the dark ages or look at the difference between the 18th century and the 19th century you know history doesn't move in this kind of great linear obvious way you always have mm. to kind of keep fighting not least because in a hundred years time like the whole world might be sort of pretty much literally on fire well i mean at least i won't be around to be debunked but you know It was a bit of a dream to speak to Helen Lewis, one of my heroes of journalism. I hope she's brought some people around to her way of handling feminism. I hope you'll read about the difficult women she describes in her book too, and that we can all gradually push for a more equal world, providing I still come out on top. Thanks to everyone who has left a review on Apple. The podcast got a whole bunch of good ones this week. I think I'll start reading some out every now and then, although I can't just read the nice ones because it will seem a little self-congratulatory. So when you leave Apple reviews from now on, please do state if you don't want me to read them out or use a fake name or whatever. They push the pod up to second in the UK's documentary category on Apple, so they do help. Please keep leaving them. Well, five-star reviews anyway. This one is from someone called B. Henry, who left one star. Please, please stop using trigger warnings. By doing so, you are subscribing to and promoting a dangerous ideology. Well, that one really pissed me off because I never use a trigger warning, except ironically one time. It just looks like B. Henry didn't really get it. Here's a more helpful one from Roxburgh33, who thankfully gave five stars and wrote, would like them to be 50% longer to get a bit more into the discussion. Also would like you to challenge and prod more. Overall, super. That's great feedback because it's really helpful regarding the length. It's hard because some people have said they're a bit long. And I was thinking of trying to shorten them further. So I'd be interested to get more feedback like that to see if I really should be making these longer or if they're already optimum length or if they're too long. If you don't have Apple, you can comment or message me on andrewgold underscore OK on Instagram or Twitter. It's a really tough one with regards to the prodding too. That's because unlike a TV debate program where you're both invited on by a neutral source, this is the case where I've messaged someone asking politely for them to give up their time for the podcast so I do feel pressure to not push them too much. I also want them to enjoy it and to share the podcast trailers when they come out on Twitter. So it's a really tough one. That said, I do take that feedback on board and I'm going to take a few more risks as the podcast grows. I'll be back next week. I'm talking to a few fascinating on the edge style people and don't yet know which of them will be next week's episode. So you'll just have to trust me that it'll be worth sticking around. Step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.